Well, before we get started this morning, let me just take a moment to say thank you for many of you uh, over these past uh, few days that have uh, just expressed such encouragement uh, with my mom having passed away. Many of you have written notes and emails and texts and phone calls and Facebook posts, the list goes on and on, and I just want to say thank you very, very much uh, for, for your prayers and for your encouragement. Uh, this is a great church to be a part of, not because of me, but in spite of me, and it's been really neat just these past few days just to kind of be a, be a person who's been ministered to, and uh, that's been God doing that through you and uh, for myself and our family. Man, thank you so, so much. You are such a blessing to us, and uh, we're so appreciative of everything you've done and of all your prayers as well. Well, this morning is a, uh, a time for us, as Nathan mentioned, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we do this four times a year. For some of you, you're very familiar with this. For others, this is brand new. You're thinking, okay, what's about to take place here? And they've never been in a service with the Lord's Supper. It's breakfast time. Why are we talking about supper? For, so for some of you, this is brand new. Well, this is something we do about every three months, and it comes right out of Scripture. And we'll look at that here in just a few moments. But we don't put you on display, I mean, you don't have to do anything, anything weird, but we're just able to celebrate and to reflect on what God has done for us. And so we found over these past few years that oftentimes these are some of the most meaningful services that we'll have all year long, and yet at the same time, some of the simplest services that we'll have as well. And so whenever we do the Lord's Supper, usually I'll take about 15 minutes or so, I kind of scale back the message time, I usually take about 15 minutes and just share a little bit uh, from Scripture to help us to get ready, help us to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds for what God wants to do through, uh, through this time. And so that's what we're doing this morning, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Well, before we do that, let me ask a question. Uh, have you realized that we live in a society that really operates on a get-what-you-deserve basis? That's kind of the world we live in, don't we? You know, you get what you deserve. And we learned that really from the youngest of ages. When we're little kids, we learn... You get what you deserve. For example, when you do good with your grades, right? You, you, you make good grades, whether that's A's or B's, or in my case, C's were like really hitting the bullseye, you know, for me. If you make really good grades, then your parents recognize that, and they reward you. You know, they give you, give you money, or they give you some kind of a reward. Why? Because you got what you deserved. You did well. You deserve something better, and so you get what you deserve. And when, whenever you look at life, that's often the way life operates, you know, if you do good at home, you do all your chores, you behave well, then you get a little bit more allowance, right? As you take on more responsibility, you get a little more allowance. You get what you deserve. You do good at, at, uh, at, at work. You know, your boss recognizes that. And they give you maybe a little, more, uh, you know, a little more pay or a promotion. You get good evaluations. You accomplish your tasks. You show a lot of great responsibility. You make good decisions. You know, they recognize that. You get what you deserve. Hey, we call you in. We think you deserve a little better, a better office or more promotion, you know, whatever. And you get better stuff. Why? Because we live in a world that operates on the basis of getting whatever it is that you deserve. Well, let me ask you this question. So how then do you act? How do you respond when somebody treats you in a way that you don't deserve? How do you respond to that? Are you all awake? You hear? Okay. Just, just, I'm just going to assume the wheels are turning, and not, not that you're dozed off or anything. So how do you act when somebody treats you in a way that you feel like you don't deserve. For example, say your neighbor starts cutting grass a little bit further into your yard, right? And you're on one hand thinking, well, that's very nice of him, you know, cutting the grass, but he's never been really nice before. So uh, apparently he's thinking, this part of my yard is his yard. What does he think he's doing? I don't deserve this. You know, how do you feel when that happens? Or maybe even better, they plant shrubs on your side of the yard, yeah? Or maybe they build a work shed over the property line on your yard. How do you respond when you get treated like you don't deserve? Have you ever been cut off in traffic and the person who cut you off got mad at you? You ever had that happen? Yeah, that's a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah. How do you respond? You pray for him, right? Yeah. 
I'm not going to ask you what you pray for, you know. <laughs> oh, God, let him run out of gas and let me see it, you know. You, know? But you, you probably get a little riled up, right? How do, you, how do you reconcile living in a world that compensates us for, what we did, for, you know, for, for whatever it is we deserve, but then when we don't treat people really well, when they treat us so badly? You know, it's, it's interesting because I had a little taste of this a couple of weeks ago. I was coming back from out of town. And uh, I was driving, I was a couple hours away still, and I had this headache, you know. And so a lot of times, if Tylenol doesn't work, ibuprofen doesn't work, a lot of times I'll, I'll get it just a cup of coffee. You know, you probably do the same thing. So I'm driving in from out of town, a couple of hours away still, by myself, and I've got this headache. And so I pull into McDonald's. And uh, what I'm about to share about McDonald's has no, this is the disclaimer part of the message. No, remember, this was out of town. If there are any franchisee owners or restaurant workers from McDonald's here locally, this was not local. So this was out of town. And so I pull into McDonald's and I walk in and, and the, you know, the girl, she's probably 20 something, I guess, working in the front. And she, as soon as I walk up to the, uh, to the counter, she pulls out the, you know, the little, uh, the new sirloin burger, you know, quadruple stack, whatever it is there. So, and she said, you know, would you like to try one of our, you know, quadruple heart attack stack, you know, burgers? And, and I said, no, no, I just want a cup of coffee. Have you ever been to the restaurant and they repeat back to you what you order you know you say like i want cheeseburger cheeseburger they don't question you they just say it you know milkshake milkshake so i said i i don't want anything i just want a cup of coffee she said senior coffee (laughs) yeah (laughs) i was like put them up Oh my gosh i was like are you kidding me i'm thinking all this in my head are you kidding me i have a headache this is not helping so, so honest, I said, I said, I just want a coffee, senior coffee. And I said, what did you say? <laughs> and here's what she said, all right, here's what she said. Oh, you don't have to be a senior to get a senior coffee. Uh, I said, somebody, I thought to my, somebody needs to hire this girl because she's very, very good at what she does. And, I, and so I said, well, just curious, how old do you have to be? Because I'm thinking here, you know, how old do you have to be to get a senior coffee? She said, 50. I said, well, I won't be 50 till later this year. And she said, oh, you look younger for your age. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I felt like I said, just shut up. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Yeah. A Big Mac falls on your head. Yeah. You know, we don't like it when we get treated the way we don't deserve, right? You know, somebody says something, you know, we want to bow up, get all, you know, that New York, hey, what do you think you're doing, huh? You know, we want to get kind of bent out of shape, you know, but that's the world we live in. We live in a world where you get treated in many ways like you deserve. It's what we're used to from the youngest of ages, through the work world, through school, everywhere that we go. It's, 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 it's getting paid for what we deserve. Well, let me introduce you to a guy named Barabbas. Many of you have heard the name Barabbas. Some of you have never heard of him. He's a man that comes out of the pages of Scripture. We know very little about him outside of Scripture, if, if anything at all. In fact, outside of the Gospels, there's really not much mention of him at all that I'm aware of anywhere else in Scripture. Barabbas is a man we're introduced to through the message of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We find him there in just a very brief mention, always in the same context, always at the same point in the timeline of Jesus' arrest, false arrest, trials, and crucifixion. He's always mentioned in that scope. He's always mentioned in that particular sequence. And yet, what we know of Barabbas isn't very good. Matthew tells us in his gospel that he was a notorious prisoner. 
All right, that tells us a little bit. Not just a prisoner, but I believe every word in Scripture is inspired. It's there for a reason. He gives us the word notorious in front of prisoner. This isn't just someone who got some, you know, did something wrong, got locked up, and uh, you know, was just kind of the average, ordinary prisoner. He you know, would, would go on his merry way. He, he was notorious. He had gained notoriety for the bad things he had done. He had broken the law multiple times, more than likely, and was now in the, in the event of having been locked up and was in prison with notoriety for all the things he had done. Mark mentions Barabbas. Listen to what Mark says. Mark says he was imprisoned with the insurrectionists, all right, the, the rebels, the revolutionaries, who had committed murder in the insurrection. So he ran with the wrong crowd. <laughs> uh, Barabbas was not a good person from what we can gain in Scripture. He was with the wrong people, doing the wrong things. The people he ran with had committed murder as a part of their rebellion, their revolutionary activity. Very, very possibly Barabbas had taken part in some of that himself as well. John says that he was a robber. If you think about the crucifixion of Jesus, where was Jesus crucified? On Golgotha. How was he crucified? He was crucified on a cross between two what? Two thieves. And so when you think about Barabbas, a notorious prisoner, a robber, one who had run with the wrong crowd, who had committed murder and uprising, and the list goes on and on. He was one that deserved nothing. He was one who deserved not just very little, who had deserved nothing. And unless you start thinking that, well, there was probably not much going to happen to him because of having been a robber, well, Jesus, again, was crucified between two thieves. And so Barabbas' day was coming, and it was coming very, very soon. For all we know, Barabbas was living out his last days when we read of him in the Gospels there in an old prison cell under more than likely Roman guard. It would have not have been, been a fancy cell. There would have been no luxuries. He would have had no flat screen TV. He would have had no central heating and air. He would have had no food brought to him on demand. He would have had no leisure time, no breaks whatsoever. He would have had, very, he would have had nothing there. More than likely what we can assume under Roman guard would be that he would have been in a very small prison cell, probably with stone walls, stone ceiling, stone flooring, and heavy iron bars to guard the door. The smell there would have been atrocious. You can imagine the smells that would have been there with other prisoners packed in with the smell of, of, uh, uh, of human waste, the smell of sweat, the smell of day after day after day of prison life. That's what Barabbas experienced every day that he woke up and every night that he went to sleep. The attention of Barabbas would only have been broken perhaps by the random mice and vermin that would have run across that floor very possibly over his own body. Again, the Romans would have cared little how the prisoners were treated in those days. There would have been more than likely no light in that cell. There would have been no outside window to the outside world. No opportunity to look out and to see what other people were doing. Life was not good. We find Barabbas living out more than likely his days until his own execution there. And yet the Gospels also tell us that he would intersect with a man named Pilate. Pilate was basically the decision maker for the Romans over the people of God there in the land of Israel at this time. In the first century, Pilate was the one who made the big decisions. He kind of ran the show. Pilate had a custom every Passover for the Jews. Passover would have been nothing to the Romans, but to the Jews it meant everything. Every Passover, Pilate had a custom where he would release to the Jews a prisoner at their request. Whoever they wanted, he would let them go and set them free. Well, the Jews would come to appreciate this. They would come ultimately to to expect this. 
And as we find here the message of the Gospels in the book of Mark in just a moment, we'll see that Pilate's life will intersect with Barabbas's life, which will intersect with Jesus's life as well. And what happens in the midst of that intersection is not only mind-boggling from the pages of Scripture, but also has huge implications for our lives and is mind-boggling to us nonetheless as well. So let's just pick up here and begin to read in the book of Mark, chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can read with, with us on the overhead. And we'd love for you to pick one up, one of the Bibles that we have out in the lobby. Just keep it for yourself and use it. Mark, chapter 15, is where I want to read briefly this morning as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. It says, now at the feast, that's a reference to the Passover. He, that's a reference to Pilate, used to release for them the Jewish people, okay? Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up. They began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. All right, so the crowd comes back and says, hey, we want some of that, what you did last year. We want you to give us the prisoner that we want. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? That's a reference to Jesus. So Pilate's saying, all right, you have a person here who claims to be the king of the Jews. His name is Jesus. Would you prefer that I send him out to you, hand him over to you? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So here's the option they have. You can either have Jesus or you can have this notorious prisoner who is paying for the crimes that he had committed. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, which is a polite way of saying beaten beyond recognition and whipped beyond recognition, he handed him, Jesus, over to be crucified. Can you see Barabbas in that cell? Can you see him sitting? Can you, see, can you smell the smells? Can you see the hopelessness that's there, knowing that his days are numbered and more than likely he's next? He's already smoked his last smoke. He's drank his last drink. He's eaten his last meal, and he's counting down very possibly the hours. And yet before he can realize it, he begins to doze off. It's the only escape he has from this hopelessness that he's experienced as he pays for the crimes that he has committed. And he's shaken out of his, out of his, his uh, sleepy state. Why? Because of the, the heavy breathing and the shuffling of feet. Someone is rushing towards his jail cell door and he hears them coming. Pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. He hears the sound of metal, keys perhaps up against iron. And somehow there's a, a man still breathing heavily, fumbling at the lock. And the door swings open. He feels the weight and the sound. He hears the sound of the metal shackles hitting the ground floor, that stone floor of that, of that jail cell. And before he can even imagine what's happening, they shove him out into the hallway. He's escorted out and suddenly his eyes are burning from the blazing sunshine that he sees. And he realizes for the first time in a long time, he's free. You know, I wonder if Barabbas looked back. I wouldn't. (laughs) Man, I'd be gone. 
But I wonder if he just took a quick glance back to what he had experienced for so long. I doubt he did. But also wonder, did he ever make his way to meet the person Jesus that he had heard of? I'm sure he'd heard his name. And if not before, when he was thrust out into the open, I'm sure he heard his name in the scurrying crowds of that day because it was all they were talking about. And I just wonder, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I wonder maybe if even you can see him in your mind pushing through the crowds, trying to find a spot as he moves up closer to a place he was familiar with called Golgotha that was going to be his resting place. And I wonder as he pushed through the crowds and he began to elbow through the taller people and kind of shove the smaller people away, if he kind of just positioned himself just right to look up on this hill Golgotha and to see three crosses, I wonder if he went there. And as he looked at the man on the left, I wonder if he thought to himself, you know what, that man is just like me. He deserves everything he's getting as he hung on that cross. And I wonder if he looked to the right and saw the man hanging on that cross and thought to himself, you know what, that man deserves everything he's getting that should have been me. But then I wonder if he made it there, if he looked to the man in the middle, a man named Jesus, and said, but that man took my place. You know, we live in a world that treats us like we deserve. You probably, and I do too, treat people the way they deserve. We live in a pay them back uh, uh, culture. But God faces the same options we do, starting with Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden and sinned against God and every person who lived after them through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, all the way up to where we sit today. Every single person has fallen and sinned before God. And God faces the same two options. Either I can pay them back or I can show them grace. You see, when we understand in our lives that we don't deserve anything from God, much less our next breath, we begin to see ourselves in light of the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel tells us that every single one of us have sinned. And that may not be a big deal to you because we sin all the time and people around us sin all the time. And we try to teach our kids not to sin while we're still trying to learn not to sin ourselves. And so because we're so accustomed to sin, we experience it so often. Sometimes we begin to downplay it and we begin to rank it. You know, these sins are less important than those sins. Well, there's the A-list of sins up here. There are even some religious structures that have certain A-lists of sins. But from God's perspective, when you're holy and when you're perfect and when everything that we see was breathed into existence by that God who's holy and perfect, who's without beginning, without end, any sin is atrocious in his sight. And the Bible tells us, and we don't need the Bible to tell us, we already know that we are all sinners, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And what we find when we begin to study ourselves and each other is that we have odd ways of trying to pay for that sin, don't we? Sometimes we try to get back into church. You know, have you ever thought this? You know what? I I feel like I'm not doing so well and I just need to get back into church. Like church is going to somehow cover us, like just send some spray wash of, of fix it all over our lives if we get back in church. Doesn't work that way. Sometimes we decide I'm going to clean my life up a little bit better. And if I can just get cleaned up a little bit better, then I'll get ready to go, go to God or go back to God. Maybe then God will take me. Doesn't work that way. You know, if you look at long jumpers throughout history, the greatest long jumper, Bob Beeman, held the record for decades, 29 feet, 2.5 inches. That's a long way. I won't even guesstimate, but I'm sure thinking he could probably jump from one side of this platform to the other. That's a long way until you put it up in the scope of the Grand Canyon, and then it's nothing. <laughs> and we try, to, we try to cover our sin, don't we? 
going to church and doing better. I'm going to clean up my language. I'm going to start, start helping other people. I'm going, to, I'm going to just fix up this area of my life. And, and we think that's going to make it all right, but in the scope of God's holiness and perfection, it's just a drop in the bucket accomplishes nothing. That's a hopeless place to be, isn't it? It's a lot like Barabbas on a jail cell floor with no hope whatsoever. But you know what? When Jesus Christ came and God's own son, and he died on that cross, and he rose again three days later. It's like the jail cell flung open, and we felt our shackles fall, and God thrust us into the light of his grace. But Jesus died in our place. It should have been Barabbas. It should have been us, but instead it was Jesus who died on that cross. And we're not all made right with God automatically, but the way we see his payment on that cross applied to our lives is when we turn from our own sin and we say, God, I don't want sin to characterize me anymore. I lay it down the best that I can. And today I turn and I invite Jesus to come in to forgive me and to just flat take over. I want him to be my savior, my Lord, my master, whatever he wants to be. Jesus, would you just be it in my life from this day forward? And when we do that, we find life. We find forgiveness and we find freedom. Here's the thing. Across this building this morning and same in our 9 o'clock service, there are people at every point along that spectrum. There are some of you that are here. You've given your life to Christ. Your walk with God has never been closer. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, you're going to praise God and you're going to thank God for what he's done for you. You may even shed a few tears. You don't have to, but they may just come without you even, even being able to stop them because of the gratitude of your heart that God has cleaned you and made you right. There are a lot of us here that we, we know we've got a long way to go, but we've given our lives to Christ, and our hearts are just so grateful for what God has done. And then there are others of us here, maybe you have given your life to Christ, and it was a few months ago or a few years ago or decades ago, and you used to walk really closely with God, and He was the center of everything for you. You prayed about everything. Your walk with Him was so incredibly close. Somewhere along the way, you began to drift. And I don't know if it was maybe a tragedy that came or maybe somebody broke your heart or maybe some dream didn't get fulfilled or maybe you just got lazy. Maybe you got apathetic. Maybe there were distractions in your life that pulled you away from God. And today you don't even feel worthy to stand in his presence. You've given your life to Christ, but you don't feel worthy. You don't think that he even wants anything to do with it. You know what? He loves you so greatly. He proved it on the cross once. And what he desires for you is to come home. And when we own our sin and confess our sin, we don't have to get saved all over again. But boy, he meets us right at that spot where we own it and confess it, and he takes it and he removes it. And he restores our fellowship with him again. And then there are others that are here. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. You've never trusted yourself to Jesus. You've never come to the place where you've realized that you need a Savior, and you've never done just what I said, laid down your sin and accepted Christ, choosing to follow him with all your heart from this day forward. You know what? Today's the day you can do that. You can simply have a conversation with Jesus, admitting your sin to him, expressing your belief that he is God, that he died and rose, and asking him to forgive you and to be first in your life. Hey, listen, I'll tell you, when you do that and those shackles fall off, it doesn't mean life gets easy. Life is still hard at times. It doesn't mean that no bad things are going to happen because they do. We live in a fallen world. But I will tell you this, no matter what comes, no matter what you face, no matter what you experience, God will be there to meet you and God will be there to carry you and to use it all for good. And when it's all done, heaven waits. So would you really want God to give you what you deserve? 
Are you angry at God because you feel like he's not giving you what you deserve? You know, God, I've been serving you, I've been praying, I've been doing all these things, and it seems like everybody else is happy and I'm not. Everybody else has a bunch of stuff and I don't. God, when are you going to give me what I deserve? Do you really, really want God to give what you deserve? I don't. Have you maybe been upset lately because it seems as though he's so unfair to you? Do you really want God to treat you fairly? I don't. When he has a choice to pay me back or show me grace, (laughs) man, I'll take grace every time. And that grace didn't come cheaply. It came because his son Jesus died to pay for it. Let's pray. God, this morning as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, first we have a time of invitation. And Lord, I pray that during this time, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I pray for those who are believers here and perhaps have just wandered, their hearts have grown cold in relationship with you. I pray that you'd really begin to stir in them. Lord, even maybe now there are some that are sensing that almost like a wrestling match in their soul. Lord, where they're being beckoned, led to lay down sins that they've been embracing for a while in exchange for you being first in their lives. Lord, they know they're in relationship with you already, but God, they have wandered and And today you want to draw them home. And I pray that they would let go and come home to you. Lord, there are others here this morning that have never given their lives to Christ. And right now, perhaps their heart is beating. And Lord, their mind is is so scattered. They're wondering, are they ready for this? Are they really ready to let everything go and to just surrender themselves to you, Lord Jesus? And God, in their soul, there's a wrestling match taking place. And they look at the cost of what it meant for them to be made right with you. And they realize they can't be good enough to be right with you. And they're wondering, is it worth it to relinquish their lives to the person of Jesus? God, I pray today that you would draw them all the way to yourself. And Lord, that you'd give them courage today to find the grace and the freedom of what it means to see our shackles cut loose, of being thrust out into the daylight and experiencing life like never before. Not because we clean ourselves up, not because we get good enough, but because we surrender to Jesus. And he cleans us and he changes us and he saves us and he keeps us. And so I pray for those this morning that are wrestling with that decision, that right where they sit today, in the best words they know how, where they'll just let go and, and invite Christ to come in and take it all. To forgive their sin, to lead their life. God, whatever decisions we need to make as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I pray that we'd make them so that we can take this time and celebrate what you've done for us with clean hands and clean hearts, clear minds, a clear conscience, thanking you for what you've done for us. God, we should have been where Barabbas was, but we're not because you've set us free. And for that, we're grateful. Bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.